This podcast is brought to you by, 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 by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vet. This GemLab meetup in collaboration with Civic Tech Innovation Network aims to reflect upon the work that is being done to decolonize African narratives, but to also look forward to resetting Africa onto a new path of solidifying its stories and futures. The sessions will unpack ways in which journalism, media and civic tech communities can contribute to reshaping African narratives. Today's conversation, the first of a two-part discussion on reclaiming African narratives through storytelling, will focus on what is needed to decolonize African narratives. Project coordinator of GemLab, Tepo Chabalala is facilitating the discussion with Moki Makura of Africa No Filter, Henry Chineri Hesse of Soft Tribe, and Anehi Edero, editor of Brittle Paper. So today's topic, reclaiming African narratives through storytelling. What is needed? It's a conversation we are having in two parts, but I will share more details of the second part at the end of today's session. But this also follows on from a conversation we've had late last year during the Urban Festival on reimagining new narratives. Um, at this discussion, we focused on what is the role of the narratives we hold and how can we transform ourselves and our society through these narratives. And now that the need or the rationale has been established following that conversation from last year, today we want to unpack what needs to be considered and what needs to happen next. I'd like to begin with Anehi. Talk us through some of the work that you are doing at Brittle Paper that speaks to the objective of reclaiming our African narratives through storytelling and what you think is needed in order to make progress in this pursuit. Okay, so bristlepaper.com is a digital content creation site that is centered on African literature. And I think it's been really instrumental for me, at least, in contributing to rethinking how we create content around African literary objects like literature. And for me, in terms of reclaiming Africa's narrative, I see a project like that as being fundamentally one that has to do with representation, but not just any kind of representation, but representation where we as Africans set the terms of our representation. Because historically, Africa has never lacked representation. It's just that we've been represented in ways that were never really our own terms. And I'm going to kind of try to quickly have us think about how a digital content creation site centered on literature can actually shift the way we think about Africa as a space and Africa as a rich cultural space. And thirdly, I hope that at some point in the conversation, we can maybe zoom out a little bit more and talk about what the role of literature, what the role of storytelling, what the role of, of a literary archive has to play in this larger cultural project that we are calling Reclaiming Africa's Narrative. So as I said, Brittle Paper is a digital content creation site and we mostly curate the African literary scene. Our mission statement is focused on thinking about African literature in a very specific way. When we say to cultivate a, form and in, a fun and informative platform for readers who love 
African literature. The use of words like fun, love, inspire, entertain is very intentional because we are coming from a space where readers have been led to imagine African literature in a very narrow, reductive sense as a literature of suffering, a, a literature that exists to serve this anthropological role of informing the world about African life, right? So many people would read African literature to see representations of suffering, representations of social ills. But African literature is, is some, it's so diverse. There are literatures like that, but it's really diverse in terms of form, in terms of genre, in terms of traditions. And we felt that people needed to know that there is so much that is delightful and captivating about the ways African writers tell stories. And so for us, it's important to invite the reader into a feast of storytelling, of narrative, of joy. So here, I'm going to take you through some of the kinds of contents that we create on Brittle Paper. We typically cover the literary scene by creating news content. So what's happening? Who is publishing what? Who is winning what award? What book is everybody talking about? What festival is taking place? What workshop is taking place? And we do this continent-wide and globally too. So what's happening that is related to African literature on the continent and in the diaspora? And people like this because it, it gives, if you're somebody who loves African writing, it, it makes you feel as if you are part of this vibrant cultural space where so much is happening and so much is being produced. We also do a kind of curatorial work by creating book lists and publishing book reviews that provide readers with guidance on what to read. You know, I always tell myself that a literary tradition, right, is nothing but a list of books. If you don't tell readers how to make connections among these books and lead them to where, to places that satisfy their specific taste as a person. African novels, for instance, have been written for over a hundred years now. There is so much that is within that literary archive, but it'll just be sitting there if we don't tell readers where to go, where to look. If you want to read fantasy, if you like science fiction, if you like love stories, if you like, you know, grand family sagas, right? Many readers don't really know where to go. And one of the work that we do is to show, is to tell readers how to navigate the archive so that their experience as readers is rich. We also kind of curate the conversations that take place because for us, African literary culture is a powerful global community. And things come up. People have ideas about all kinds of different things. They want to weigh in on hot button issues. They want to think about controversies, about things that matter to the community. Brittle Paper offers a space where, you know, people can share their ideas about the continent, about storytelling, and about their experiences as readers. So interviews have been a powerful way in which we make sure that we capture the multiple voices on the continent, right? Brittle Paper is an Anglophone project in the sense that it is English-centered. It's easy to kind of shut out the rest of the continent, which 
which has sort of is something that has plagued African literature in the sense that, you know, you have Lusophone literature, Anglophone, Francophone, Hispanophone, and we exist in these silos. But I find that interviews can be a good way to get writers in all these different tradition talking about their work, talking about their world. And one thing that we do that our readers love is that aside from curating the literary culture in terms of, you know, hard literary news, we also kind of inject a little bit of fun into things by following African writers as they live their lives as people, right? So for instance, you know, who is getting married, who is declaring their relationship on Instagram, who is pregnant. News like this, content like this kind of give readers a fuller, richer sense of what the community is. That look, this is a real community where we come together to read books, think about books, but also where we live. And so this is something that we do that we really love. Brittle Paper is a kind of incubation space for writers. We publish Imagine Voices, new people coming on, trying their hands at writing. We publish poetry, fiction, essays. But one of the things that we do that we really love is that we also publish anthologies. Recently, we published the first ever African Futurism anthology, which has been quite critically acclaimed since its publication. This is our way of kind of filling in places where we see gaps, right? Where we want to see a certain kind of narrative that we are not seeing, then we look for money get writers together and have them um, write stories inspired by that particular form. And, you know, we also curate the culture itself. Every year, the community looks forward to two lists that we create. At the end of the year, we create the 50 notable African books. It is really popular. You know, everybody looks forward to it because it kind of pulls everything together and shows you how rich and amazing a particular year has been in terms of African books. Then in January, we publish what is called the most anticipated African books of the year. This year, there were 55 books on that list that included everything from science fiction, romance novels, scholarly text, memoirs, exploring all facets of life. And for us, it shows what is beautiful about African literature. And every year, we also pick somebody who we award the African Literary Person of the Year Awards to. It's something that everybody in the community also looks forward to. And we, we have this special project on Instagram that we really love, where we curate the African literary scene in a way that, that takes into account the archival power of social media. And for us, seeing that we are living at a time when social media is becoming the space for civic discourse, it's important that we adapt African literature to these new digital spaces. And one thing it does is that it contributes towards adapting African literature to the new generation of readers, right? There are readers today for whom colonialism doesn't mean the same thing that it meant for people before. There are readers for whom technology is, constitutes their world and their lives, how can we ensure that as history progresses, African literature is moving with the times and that new readers are finding new ways to connect with it and to make sure that 
African literature continues to be a conduit for their own cultural experience. That for us is something that has to happen in the digital space. And hopefully as we talk more, we can talk about what literature does in a more broader sense for reclaiming our narrative, but also specifically what digital technology does for this work. Thank you so much, Anehi. And I want to I want to touch on that because that's something that really that sits on my heart in in reaching audiences through digital. And more often than not, our work often reaches those living in urban spaces. How do we reach those who are living in the periphery, in the rural areas, and um, with this kind of information? We have to fight the battles, you know, from two fronts. It's easy to begin to think that the digital is the beginning and end of the world. And to imagine that everybody is there, but everybody isn't there, as you're mentioning. And that, so that's why we need to also pair the digital with actual real life events in the world, right? Places where, places where we can actually meet together in flesh and blood, and we can do a certain type of cultural work that may not be possible in the digital sphere. So, for example, a space like Ake Festival in Nigeria, right? Every time it happens each year, it creates spaces where people from the community can be involved, where school children can be involved, can be a part of the experience, and they can meet writers, you know, culture curators coming from all over the continent and all over the world. That's so finding a way where we can ensure that we are always creating physical real spaces that are immediate and close to the community is very important and works very well with the digital because the divide or the difference between the digital and the physical is very blurred but it's important that we understand that everybody is not in the digital space and that we have to create this other spaces where we can actually reach people. But Anehi, I've got a question for you, um, Anehi. You know, as, as much as we see the need to celebrate our giants, how do you feel about the state of open democratic spaces for young and fresh voices to be heard? The nobodies who also have stories to tell. Because what Anonymous sees is that on brittle paper, they see the big names. Where are mm -hmm. the unknown names? And how do we promote those names and their stories? So you make a very good point about the overwhelming focus we have on writers who are successful. And for me, this is important as we think about the future, right? Because our successful writers are already successful. But if you think about it, they are really honestly just a handful of writers, of African writers making global success, right? You can count them in your two hands. For a continent of over one billion people, it is a problem that our literary space is represented by such a small community of creatives, right? My sense is that there has to be more done to create opportunities for new voices. The barrier of entry into literature is it's tough. It's really, really tough. And training especially is very expensive, right? An average class for creative writing 
in the US, we are talking $400. That is prohibitively expensive for a kid in Kigali, you know, who is 19 years old. She loves to write. She would like to write, but she literally does not have access to affordable training. And so you have a situation where there are lots of people writing. I know this because every month we receive about 300 submissions to Brittle Paper. They are all really bad, right? And it's not because we are trying to be gatekeepers. Is that it's just it like it's not good writing. But you can see the earnestness. You can see the passion that these very young writers have. So I'm thinking, in thinking about the future, we have to begin to build capacity. We have to create a situation where writers on the continent, aspiring writers on the continent, have access to affordable training platforms where they can actually write and where they can know where to go for opportunities. Right now, it's about who you know. If you know someone, they can tell you how to get opportunities for publishing. That's not okay. We need to create an army of writers if we are really serious about reclaiming our narrative, as opposed to depending on the 20 or so writers, you know, who are already successful. So you're absolutely right that there is a gap there that needs to be addressed. Thank you so much, Anahi. We'll come back to you. Um, I want to quickly move to Herman. Herman, who is the founder and chairman of Subscribe and also founder of African Echoes. Can you talk to us a bit about that work and, and how you are hoping that a platform like African Echoes uh, is a place that can reclaim our African narratives through the stories that will be uploaded or told through African Echoes? Um, what my uh, sister was saying a second ago, she's completely right. There, there seems to be a big challenge in normal, regular people getting access to the world and getting their writing to go, getting their stories to to hit the world. This is what we intend to tackle. But our approach is different. We say we know of the existence of many, many good writers across the continent. Now, these people are just writers. They know how to write well. So we've kind of assembly lined it like uh, they did with Motown Records. So there are people who have good stories, the people who can do translations, the people who can write. We are setting up a platform which will allow them to work independently but to deliver the product. So we are assembly lining it. So what we are doing is basically somebody who may not even speak English or French. They have a very good story. They deliver the story to us. We farm the story out to the simple story in audio to our group of writers from around the world, mainly Africans, but non-Africans can participate. And then they write the story and then uh, we hand it to the translators, they translate and we hand it to the readers, they read. And then we launch it on our app. Everybody gets to hear the story pay for it. So we are looking at fast and furious. We have people around the world who, who can write. We don't need one person can write six six books every month. It's not a big deal. And then we also have the ability because of the mobile phone proliferation to hit the rural areas and to hit them in local language. So we don't only have the Chinua Achebis who are basically given a break by the big institution, the big publishing house. We will be a publishing house, we are an audio publishing house in Africa, we are the gatekeepers. We can now allow stories that traditional publishing houses would not have allowed. And since we're going to work fast and furious, I believe there are things that are interesting that people will buy, that people are interested in, that given the rigid structure that has existed before, we didn't even know people liked that kind of thing. We may not know that a village story from Sierra Leone would be considered to be very, very interesting, very sexy, 
and very exciting by people in China, Southern China. We would never know that. Given what the approach we have taken at African Echoes, we think we're going to discover lots of nooks and crannies and interesting areas where we didn't know. The traditional structure just didn't permit enough people to come through the eye of the needle for us to experiment, to, to understand what it is exactly Ethiopians like about Nigerian literature, what it is exactly African-Americans like about uh, Kenyan literature. So this is our approach. And we are able to, we believe we'll be able to achieve the last mile into the village in local language because we're working on the mobile phone. If you can use WhatsApp, you can use our system. So we want to democratize the space. This is what we are doing. My background is technology. I'm not a literature person. I'm not a writer. But I'm basically creating a platform that will enable the writers who, who know better than me to be able to launch Fast and Furious easily, regularly in audio. Illiterates will suddenly become, become authors because someone else will do the writing, someone else will do the translation, someone else will do the reading, but their story still holds and everybody makes money. This is our approach. Kermen, I hear what you're saying and thank you for that. Data is a big issue on the continent. And when, when we want to reach those remote areas, how do we reach them when we struggle with data and the cost of data? How do you we plan already, to do that through African Echoes? We've already tackled that. Uh, basically, agents who sell in the villages, they will get it from the city on data. When they get to the village, it's a phone-to-phone -phone transfer, so there's no data. And by the way, our books are on the phone. You're not reading online. It's a download, like, like a WhatsApp picture, if you see what I mean. A small, short WhatsApp video. That's the kind of format. So somebody who is an agent who will come to the city, download it. When he gets to the village, he knows what to do. Phone to phone, he'll transfer to everybody. And our systems still work offline. This, this is our background. I mean, my company, Soft Tribe in Ghana, is notorious for building things that work in Africa. We came up with a concept called tropical tolerance, where we consider the power requirements, the financial capabilities of the people. And so we, we made our, our name doing this. So we, we kind of know how to operate in the village with very rudimentary situations where we're Africans. We're not, we're not coming into Africa with some high-falluting solutions. Very crude, but it works. Thank you so much, Herman. I want to quickly move over to Moki um, in the interest of time. And before we get into a discussion and go to the rest of your questions, Moki, what are you guys doing at African Filter, And what do you think is needed um, in order to make this progress in reclaiming our narratives through storytelling? African Filter is, we're a relatively new organization. We were set up really to do exactly this. It's about trying, we are there to try and shift harmful stereotypical narratives, not just about Africa, but within Africa. Because believe me, what a Kenyan knows about a Nigerian, knows about a Malian or a Zambian is very little. So that's what we're set up to do. Um, and just very quickly, there, there are three ways we do that, or four ways we do that. One is that we're really focused on research. Because when you start talking about narrative and storytelling, it could get very nebulous. So we're trying to bring academic rigor to it. So we're doing research. And I'll refer to some of the research we've done because it's really to us about unpacking what current prevailing narratives are, which we actually have identified what they are. And then also trying to see what is the impact because narrative matters. There is an impact to narrative. So the research is helping us unpack that. Second, the second thing we do is that African Filter is trying to support the community of people working in this space. In fact, Brittle Paper is going to be a grantee of ours, um, and I'll talk more about our grant making, but they're people who are working to shift narratives. They're people who are already in the space. We've come in because, and I have to say, very grateful that we've got quite good funding to do this kind of work. Um, so it's about trying to connect <coughs> the, net, the network of people and, and also just trying to figure out how to strengthen them. So it's not just 
a couple of individuals, not one brittle paper and then one African filter. It's a group of people collectively working to shift narratives and introduce new, more compelling narratives about the continent. That's the second thing we do. The third thing we do is that we crowd in new narratives. And it's very easy for us to say we're not happy with the current narratives about the continent, about our countries, but sometimes we don't articulate what we want the narrative to be. So our new narratives work is really about crowding in new storylines. And that's where our grant making happens. We give grants to individuals, to organizations, and organizations that train people. And that's to do two things. One is to create projects that create more content. And another is that we give grants to organizations that align to our mission. So organizations that just by nature of what they do, they're setting out to shift narratives like, you know, Brittle Paper being one, you know, from media perspective, the continent being another, because what they do is they try and shift um, narratives just by um, virtue of what they, what they do. And the, the fourth and final thing that we do is disrupting, disruption. And disruption is where African Filter creates programs that we feel challenges and disrupts current narratives. So we want to set ourselves up as a bit of a watchdog um, for the industry, only because we believe there's a gap and, and somebody should do it. And there's a number of projects we've got on under there. Just, you know, one of the, well, I'll just tell you about two of the ones that I think are quite important. One is a story agency. And this came as a result of some research we did into how African media covers Africa. So I think there's always been this point finger pointing that it's always foreign media that's depicting Africa in a particular way. What we found was that actually African outlets are as complicit in stereotyping um, other African countries because the research we, we did showed that 81% of the coverage that we found in African outlets about other African countries was that hard news stuff like conflict, wars, politics. It's the hard news that sort of get, takes us back to that stereotypical idea. It's stories of poverty, of poor leadership, of corruption, of, of disease. 80% of the stories we saw were of that, and that was in African outlets. So what also what we found was that human interest stories was resulting in about, I think, 7% of the content was human interest stories. 4% of the content was arts and culture related stories. So we're not even learning anything about our creativity and innovation. So basically, the story agency was set up to do to counter that, saying that we're going to be like a Reuters or an AFP, where we're producing soft news stories for African outlets to take under Creative Commons. So it's free for them to publish. So the idea is we're creating content that connects the continent. Content that connects the continent. That's what story agency is. And then the other quick one I'll do is the Global Media Index, which we're looking at creating, which is taking you know, 15 to 20 of the top global media outlets that cover and have influence in Africa and ranking them. We're looking at two things. One is how, how diverse is their newsroom and, and just hard metrics, like how many African stories do they cover? How many Africans are actually writing these stories? How many, how many stories are covered? And then the other piece is what is the content of the stories? So it's content analysis looking at you know, is the story positive? Is it negative? So that's the um, global media index. So let me stop there on what Africa No Filter does. But one, the couple of things that we've realized since we've been doing that is that the prevailing narrative about the continent are threefold. One is that Africa is somehow broken because everybody wants to try and come in and fix us. That's the first one. The second one is that we lack agency because we can't seem to fix ourselves. We don't, you know, we're always looking outside. And the third one is that we're dependent. We don't seem to be able to do this ourselves, so we always require other people to do this. Those are the pervading narratives we, we identify from a lot of research that we did. So what I've seen that we as Africans need to do is, first of all, we need to take back the pen, as in we need to write those stories. And that's why I love the work that Brittle Paper is doing, 
in that we can't rely on outside sources to define us. That's the first thing. And I think we have for a lot of reasons. Media industry and the creative industry is cash-strapped on the continent. There isn't a lot of money going in. African Earth is one of the very few African-based funders who are funding. The second thing I think we need to do is that we need to take an interest in each other. You know, are we watching each other's movies? Yes, we know that non-Nigerians are watching Nollywood, but a lot, a lot of other countries are making movies. Are we reading each other's books? You know, to Herman's point about, you know, we can just put books out there and assume people, are, you know, because of the digital platform, people will read them. Wonder if we're sufficiently interested in ourselves as Africans to consume our own content. We've been hoodwinked by Hollywood. In fact, we did a, a piece on the Coming to Africa movie recently, because it's not up to Hollywood to define our write our story, but unfortunately they've got the platform, the influence and the spread. And that brings me to the third point is that right now, I don't think as Africans, we occupy the right spaces to influence our stories. There's a lot of great content out there. There's a lot of amazing content that's being written, that's being put on websites, but who's reading it? Who's being influenced by it? Do we as, a, as Africans know each other? So there's a lot of questions because this thing about our narrative and you know us owning our story, writing our story, there are many people who are doing it, but is it breaking through? That's the question I'd, I'd love to know the answer to. Thank you so much, Moki. And one question that really speaks to what you, you've been saying is, is the pan-African dynamic, you know, when you talk about diaspora, is the African dynamic enriching or is it conflictual? You know, from a consumption perspective, you know, is there a strong diaspora demand or a purchasing power to help resource this and create a demand for African content? You know, it's funny, I actually think the African diaspora is actually pretty strong in terms of they are interested in content from the continent. I think where the weak point is that I don't know that a Nigerian is that interested in content coming out of Egypt or Mali or Sudan or, you know, I came across this guy, in, in fact, I don't know, other people might know him, who has read a book from every country on the continent. How many other Africans have done that? When I stop and I think about the sort of literary giants, probably mainly Nigerians, maybe a couple of Kenyans. When I look at where our grant applications come from, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, there's a handful of countries that dominate and then the rest is silent. And what I realized when we did our webinar, we did a webinar on this, how Africa covers the continent. And well over half the people, well, maybe that's not true, but a lot, the majority of the people who dialed into this webinar on how African media covers Africa were from the US and the UK. The third country was South Africa. So I'm assuming that those people were Africans who were interested in, in there. So I think the diaspora play a really big role and what we say is that we, the work we do is for Africans wherever they are. If you identify African, doesn't matter where you're sitting, then the work we're doing to shift narratives is applicable to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Anehi, I want to bring you in as well and, and want you to understand what have you learned about your audience? Who are they? I mean, my audience is split, actually, between the continent and um, the diaspora. I think... As Maki is noting, the diaspora is a powerful space. And in literature, we have a situation where it's easy for the diaspora to overwhelm the, cult, the, Afri the global African literary space. So for us, it's easy to get the diaspora to care. It's easy to get them to be involved. What we kind of work harder to is to make sure that we are reaching readers on the continent. And over the years, we've been able to do that. 
our readers tend to be based mainly in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Kenya, the usual suspects, you know? Um, those are the three countries that come up a lot when you talk about these kinds of cultural spaces. But we also notice that we have the attention of very young writers, right? And if we go by where we receive submission from, if we go by the kinds of people who engage with us on social media, it cuts across a large swath of the continent. And these are very young writers. Some these are, are, are people who are really young and for whom literature is something that they are kind of getting into and that they see as something that they want to be a part of. But when we started out, our readers were based in the US and the UK. And over the years now, it's become the other way around. You know, we have more continental, continent-based and readers and critics and writers who are part of our audience. You know, to your point that you and Moki are, are making, and I want to bring in Herman as well after you, is how do we plan to bring in all these other countries on the continent that are not showing up to the table when we talk about audiences and when we talk about when we bring up these conversations? They're not there. How do we include them or bring them in to these conversations? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can I just answer? Because I, I, I want to be clear that if we're talking about Pan-African, like Brittle Paper is a, is a Pan-African, it's a global thing, but don't forget there's a lot of activity going on within countries. So just because they're not showing up or applying to our grants doesn't mean there isn't literary stuff happening in those countries. So I just want to just put that clear. Right. I mean, I think that there are, there's a lot happening in these spaces, right? The key is, is making sure that they get the visibility that they need. And that's why when we started out, it was important to us that Brittle Paper does not become a Nigeria-focused space. I am Nigerian. And it's easy, right? And there's a way in which Nigeria and South Africa in the literary world kind of dominate the Anglophone African literary space. So it's easy that you could curate things in such a way that those worlds are dominant at the most visible. So what we do is that we are we kind of, carefully curate things happening on the continent so that we can talk about what's happening in other um, spaces. In Namibia, for instance, we want to know what platforms are people creating, who is writing, who is publishing in those spaces. And I think that people get brought to the table when they see themselves represented in that space. So in the past one year, been able to kind of to curate various things in the Namibian literary space. And in part because of that, we've, we've seen interest from that side of things. Creating a space that is truly Pan-African where everybody feels like their stories are being represented is part of how you get people together. Because I don't know if I were not Nigerian, if I would care about a space where it's a see my world is not visible and it's just, you know, it's only... Nigeria that exists there. But if I get to a space and I see that I am represented, then it makes me open to experiencing or engaging with other worlds. That's so again, the key is curating space in such a way that it's not a kind of insular South African project or Nigerian thing where everybody feels like their story in the literary community is being told. Absolutely. 
Uh, th- thank you for that, Anehi. And I want to really touch, I want to come to the questions from the audience. Um, and Herman, this is for you. Uh, do you have any concerns or mitigations for quality control on uh, African echoes, or is that not an issue? Um, yes, I, I actually do. It's, it's, it's an issue. Uh, we have a, an executive editorial board that has to clear everything that comes on onto our platform. Even before it's selected, even before it's explored, even before it's written and translated and published and read and all that, it has to pass a bunch of tests. However, those tests that it has to pass, those tests, the gatekeepers are Africans from all over the world, African-Americans, European Africans, and Africans on the continent, the kinds of people who have an idea of what kind of book they want to come through. So suddenly, as Africans, we get to tell our own story. We are the gatekeepers. So I have like 15, 20 people, good caliber people from all of Africa who are standing by and the stories go to them and then they pass them and then they go. So there's some semblance of quality control. However, I'm sure that you would appreciate that my editorial team is different from the one at Longman or Penguin Books. These are Africans. They, they understand they're from all of Africa. So I expect that lots of stories will pass, whereas they may not have passed in the traditional publishing houses. Lots of them will pass on my side. And don't forget, my writers are also pre-selected. They're good quality. They're Africans for the most part. So the quality will be kept up because um, the people participate, the participants and the, the players are, are good quality. Does it answer your question? Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Herman. Moki, this is a question for you. And you kind of touched on when you spoke about the story agency that you are doing, you know, and the question is, when do we get to a point that we break the gap on our stories with the movies that we watch uh, in Africa? The way we consume content has changed, right? So I think it's admirable what Little Paper is trying to do and it's, it's bringing the written word. But when I look at young people and I look at the platforms people consume, Instagram is the fastest growing one on the continent because people are visual now. Reading takes time. So films are just easier. Um, and we've always said that oral tradition in Africa, which is why I think, you know, Herman's idea of, you know, doing audio, audio books is writing books, reading a dying art. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not that generation, but I do find that young people are not reading as much as, as we did, as they did. Does that mean they're not consuming as much? I don't know. And I think somebody needs to kind of actually look at that. I, I do think that films, they're more, much more engaging. It's, it's using more senses and actually requires less thought because books trigger creativity. They make you kind of imagine what the, um, what the scenario is. So m- my point is that, yes, we can push books. Or we can say this is what the trend is and go as long as they're consuming content because the purpose is not to push a particular format. It's to get the content out there. So, you know, we, we you know, in the African filter, we're, we're promoting and supporting, you know, podcasts. We're doing grant making there. Um, you know, we're, we're across the board. We've probably got different categories of, of artists and, and storytellers that we, we support, but it's not any one platform. I, I think that, there's a difference between books and writing, right? And what we are seeing in digital culture is, yes, a shift away from books as the primary kind of mode of, of engaging with text, right? But digital culture is, is actually very heavy on writing, right? We do a ton of writing. And, and this is where what counts as writing is shifting, right? That so, yes, I'm not married to the book as a technology of information, right? The book can disappear as far as I am concerned. It's not as if ideas will die if books die, right? 
books is just one technology of information. But writing as a particular mode of thought, right, is something that is actually gaining a ton of traction in digital culture. And that so the work of nurturing writing, the work of finding ways to circulate writing, to write in ways that are interesting and fascinating is one that we are just starting and that it's actually going to become more important as time goes. But of course, as Moki was suggesting, it requires kind of thinking outside the box, right, about what shapes our narratives can take, what mediums they can come in, how we can rethink what storytelling, what writing itself is, and how we can do this by, you know, through a creative engagement with digital culture. But writing as a particular way of configuring thinking, creating knowledge, I think is, is here to stay. Thanks for that. And really a follow-up to that is, is I'm, I'm going to put three questions into one. So how do we ensure visibility and representation for other African identities than the ones that we usually see? And how do we want African stories to be portrayed and, and why? I mean, we want them to be portrayed as stories. You know, and I'm speaking here as, you know, from the point of view of a literary scholar, right, that Traditionally, the way we've thought about African stories has not always been one that takes into account the richness and diversity of the archive. I think of this cute little essay Achebe wrote in the 60s titled The Novelist as Teacher, where Achebe imagined the African novelist as somebody who creates works that actually teach the reader right? Those, those ways of thinking about what African stories are, I think, are problematic in the ways that they reduce what literature is, you know, to the capacity to inform, to instruct, to teach. But I think that what stories do is so much more than that, right? Stories captivate us. Stories shape the way we think, not by teaching us, you know, but by moving us to imagine in ways that we typically wouldn't have. Stories do that by kind of giving flesh to worlds that we imagine at the level of theory. They make things less abstract for us. And most importantly, they connect with us emotionally at a very deep level. That's really stories are powerful because they captivate us. And it's important for readers to realize that African stories have always done that for centuries. We tell stories to entertain, to move people, right? And that hasn't changed. And digital technology is also expanding the ways in which we are able to tell stories, right? We are seeing the ways that African literature is, is now beginning to explore various aspects of African experience. And then can, can, I, can I just stop you there? We're almost running out of time and I want to quickly close the conversation. Moki, Quick question, and ultimately, what are the practical barriers, opportunities that we see to advance uh, this agenda of reclaiming African narratives, and who must do what about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I just a quick answer to, I don't think there are any barriers. I really think just, you know, we need to continue to do what we're doing as Africans, and we need to also be able to put our hand up when we see representations that we don't agree with, but we have to make sure we're putting out the stories and we are consuming our own content with as many Africans as there are on the continent, plus the ones in diaspora, if we start consuming our own content, we will be shifting narratives. Thank you so much, Moki. 
Anehi, what, what is your answer to that? What are the practical barriers and opportunities that we need to see to advance this agenda? And what must we do about it? We should, yes, I think, you know, the idea of consuming our own content is key. And for us, that content will be our literature. And to figure out ways to make it not prohibitive for people to actually have access to this content. So what somebody, what um, Herman is doing is very important, making stories affordable for people. Things like that, that make it easier for Africans to consume story, to read stories by Africans, to me, is very key. Herman, I want to come to you as we close. Who must do what about it in terms of reclaiming these African uh, narratives through storytelling? Okay, my, my attitude is that we don't have enough data. I'm going to attempt to throw thousands of stories out there and then we'll get a clearer picture of what Zimbabweans like, what Sierra Leoneans like. And then on the basis of that, we can go forward. But it requires a technology that is cheap enough and prolific enough for us to throw a lot out to get a feel. Because the phones are out there, we're cool. And because like 50% of our people at least are illiterate, can't read. So all the reading stuff is only attracting half our one point something billion people. I'm actually attempting to go in local language to the village. So we will understand what the villagers like and what they don't like. And on the basis of that, we'll be able to understand what we're doing. Obviously, we'll love to continue this conversation. I want to say thank you to Anehi, thank you to Moki, who's, who had to leave quickly, and also thank you to Herman for all your insights and your contribution to this conversation. I'd like to bring your attention to the second part of this conversation on reclaiming African narratives through storytelling. Uh, that will take place on April, April 22nd. Uh, and that is simply called Making It Happen. We want to speak to more of the doers. What are they doing in this space? And, and their learnings on bringing others into this market, interrogating their models and innovations. Uh, but let's not limit that conversation to just these meetups. Uh, please feel free to reach out, to chat to us, email us if you have any ideas on how we can collaborate and drive actual impact through our different platforms and various other channels. Thank you so much, Tepo, and all the panelists for this insightful conversation. Visit gemlab.africa or find us on all social media platforms at Gemlab Africa to continue or share your ideas on how we can take this conversation forward. You'll find more details on our next conversation on our website, gemlab.africa. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.